I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, hello again. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby, and thanks for subscribing. Professor Steve Keen is with us again, of course. And today we ask, should we fund growth by growing debt? Now, it was, of course, immensely unfashionable not long ago to do that. Getting budgets back into balance was, of course, the key focus. Treasurers would boast about austerity measures as though they liked making life tough for everyone because without the pain, you don't get the gain. That was the theory. Now, though, governments are delaying just when they expect to see their budgets back in surplus. And, of course, Donald Trump is talking about lavish spending plans. Admittedly, he naively perhaps expects it's all going to be done with private sector money. But generally, his focus is on spending to fund growth. But, Steve... What about those governments that still do want to balance budgets quickly, believing that if you reduce debt, then over time that will increase investment and help the economy grow? I mean, what's wrong with that approach? Okay. If we were chipmunks, this would be an extremely sensible policy. Because chipmunks, as we all know, uh, hoard nuts. And if we had a chipmunk-based economy, we'd be uh, waiting for the nuts to fall off the tree, building up a hoard, and a government that let its hoard of nuts run down would be in a bad situation. So that that uh, that, that particular chipmunk should be imposing a tax on the other chipmunks. That means that it gets more uh, nuts in than it has to send nuts out. And therefore, when there's a rainy day, uh, as the government uh, chipmunk, it can hand out some of its store, and we all avoid starving when when the when we can't go out and harvest. That's that's the basic model. So in that sense, we have a chipmunk theory of economics <laughs> running uh, running running the uh, our, our government policy. Right. In fact, I'm getting some wonderful images here of Theresa May hopping around and <laughs> no, don't 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 scare sorry, sorry. don't don't no, don't leave that sorry. thought from your mind. But the, obviously, okay. the more Keynesian way is that uh, you know more government investment is going to help the economy grow. And- well, no, it's, it's it's actually it's actually more simple. We're not in a chipmunk economy. We yeah. don't hoard nuts. Okay. Yeah. It comes down what, what when you're talking about a government. Uh, being like a, a responsible like a household and spending less than it gets, you know, saving by spending less than it uh, gets in revenue. Um, that makes sense if you're a chipmunk. Okay? It doesn't make sense with money because how do we create money? Now, we know money doesn't fall from trees like chip, like, like nuts do, but we don't actually understand where it comes from. And this is the whole problem because it is that there are two forces in society which can create money, two in a, in a national economy. One is the banks, which create money by lending out more than they get back in repayments. The other is the government. Mm. If the government spends more than it takes back in taxes and then it finances that effectively by by its own bank underwriting its spending, which happens in a, in a convoluted way, then they create money. Now, with that extra creation of money, there's actually something for people to spend and something for people to also uh, invest with. And when we by trying to treat the, the government like a household and say it should actually tax more than it spends, the end product of that is a government which is actually taking money out of circulation. 
Well, money is a, money is of course an artificial construct. I mean, it's, we're not yeah. like chipmunks because because uh, we're dealing. We, we with make it us. We make it, yeah, ourselves. we make it ourselves. Yeah, and and therefore, let's say let's the government let's let's have the government rather than making let's the government destroy money and make the economy grow faster that way. Yeah. All right. Which, doesn't, have, which doesn't make a great deal of sense. I understand. But the conventional yeah, argument, of yeah. course, is that there's going to be a tipping point at which you, you grow so much government debt because, uh, mm. uh, you know, you've got to pay interest on that debt. Uh, and ta- that's, so, that's so hard. That's incredibly difficult because it involves somebody using a, a pen and writing a number in two columns, one called assets, the other called liabilities. That's really hard to do. I mean, I don't think you could even possibly make that computerized, could you? No, well, poss- <laughs> possibly not. But I mean, <laughs> But but that is the that is the conventional belief, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the, the argument you, you, you hear from yeah. po- politicians and commentators yeah. that the government is getting into so much debt that we are now paying so much interest that taxes yeah. are being spent maintaining that debt rather than spending it on things which are for the public good. And it's all a myth. It's all a misunderstanding of the accounting that's actually involved in how the bank the government operates. Because the one thing which makes the government unique, even compared to banks, is that it's the only institution in society that owns its own bank. Now, of course, the central bank has independence, et cetera, et cetera. But the central bank is required effectively to buy the bonds of the government that aren't bought by the private sector. And if you think what actually going on when a, when, a, when a government runs a deficit, it will, of course, it's, its tax revenue is, is less than its expenditure in that case. So therefore, it has to make up the difference by issuing bonds. It issues the bonds. Now, those bonds are bought by pension funds, by insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera. And let's just say that, the gov- that there's an insufficient demand for them. Then the central bank comes in and buys some of those bonds off the private sector, which means suddenly the private sector has got less of the bonds than they wanted to have. And so they go back and buy the ones they wanted to have from the government. And ultimately, through that mechanism, the amount of the bonds that are bought by the central bank actually is how the government creates money. And right. it's creating that money mainly in the financial sector, because that's mainly the, it's mainly the financial sector that buys buys these commodities. But what that then means is, with that, when the government then goes and spends that that difference, it's now finance the activities it can do in the real world. So it can now uh, the money it, it then you know, the that funds nurses in the NHS, doctors, that funds uh, teachers, that funds road construction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. That becomes spending in the real economy. So that's the actual mechanism and there's physically no limit on the capacity of the government to create that money it comes down to how does it use the money and what's the impact of that on the economy itself so and there we are and then that would, there we get to the key point don't we that i mean mm. if uh, because these are decisions then which are made by by the government so for example the government of the uk decides it wants to build uh, the high speed rail the hs2 project yeah. uh, and it's, it says well we can't uh, you know that we'll issue bonds for that nobody wants to buy right. them the bank of england buys them maybe people don't want to buy them because it's such a bad idea. I'm not saying it is, but, you know, maybe that's the belief. Yep. Uh, I mean, it, it can distort how resources, I hate to use that term, uh, you know, the allocation mm. of resources, but it can distort that because because uh, because the government is making a call on something that they might not know anything about. Imagine that. Well, that's a possibility. And that's certainly the case when you have a, a government which has been stripped of any real intellectual uh, prowess over 30 or 40 years of neoliberalism that's driven <laughs> driven out people had any any long term history uh, or any any knowledge of in- engineering and other concepts like that. I actually had to have a, having a chat with people in the. Uh, in the Treasury recently, and they told me that uh, when they when the crisis hit in two thousand and eight, somebody said, "Who was here 
during the last crisis, which I think was back in the early 1990s for uh, England. And out of a room of something close to 100, about three or four hands went up. So because we've had such a hollowing out of the public sector by this belief that privacy does everything better, et cetera, et cetera, we've actually lost the institutional memory we need to handle things that occur over a much longer uh, time time period than the private sector normally plans for. So, um, yeah, it can make mistakes, but the, the, the alternative then case is, okay, why don't you just create the money that you know, we, we need, a, the economy, a growing economy needs a growing amount of money. There's never been an economy that's had a sustained rate of economic growth while money supply has been falling. Yeah. So we need to provide the money somehow. You could actually do it and simply transfer the money to private bank accounts, frankly, directly. Yes. Well, that so gets, you decide how to use it. Yeah, because that gets over the issue. Because if you don't do that, the you know the scenario you described, I mean, that is, that's pretty much a centrally planned economy, isn't it? It's the opposite of capitalism. It's like saying, well, well yeah, the, 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 government, the government is going to make a call on how the money is spent because uh, they, they know that the central bank is going to buy the, the, the bonds that they issue for whatever projects they decide they want to do rather than the private sector determining it. Well, there's a, there's a range. Of, you've got to think about what we actually spend our money on. There are there some things we simply want to have the provision being standard across the whole community. You don't want your quality of education of your kids depend upon your income or where you live. Sure. And of course, that's precisely the situation we've got ourselves into these days. It does. And that's where a huge part of the justified complaints about inequality are coming from. It's inequality because people start out with very different advantages from birth by uh, parents' income and by where they live. So that's that's at least a social breakdown, that sort of situation. In that situation, you do want the government saying we're going to provide a, a common standard across the entire country. So there are things like that, which is the whole, getting the whole idea of competition in there is just thinking wrongly about it. This is a cooperative element of society. We, we need to do it at that level. But at the other, in the other extreme, you actually, uh, because we actually need money creation by the government, the government's in a, in a, in a capacity to lose money and not lose money. Because of a private, let's say, for example, a private individual back in 1963 decided he wanted to land a rocket on the moon. Would never have happened. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now, the it's American difficult to make a business case for it. <laughs> yeah, it's possible now, 40 years later. But the amount of money, inverted commas, lost in the whole NASA exercise was, ast- pardon, the, pardon the pun, was astronomical. Yeah. Uh, however, out of that, we've developed the modern world we have now, where it actually is quite feasible to say, we've got a couple of companies now competing to see if they can be the first ones to capture an asteroid, bring it back into Earth orbit, and mine it. Now, that's really uh, our feature, future as a species depends upon that sort of thing happening. But it potentially would not have happened at all, ever, if we hadn't had an enormous government project. And the government could do it because it simply decided to do it. It doesn't have the financial constraints that a business has of having to have a, a profitable you know, revenue flow. It has to, you know, a company can't survive if it's losing money over time. A government can because it's creating the money in the first place. Right. And that, that means the government's one of two institutions in society which can afford to really throw money at innovation the other being extremely wealthy individuals, venture capitalists and so on, uh, who, who can make that uh, in, in the belief there's going to be an outrageous profit in the future. But they would never have seen an outrageous profit in starting space exploration in the very first case. Or if they did, it would have been 50 or 100 years later than where we actually began. So in those cases, you've got a real role for the government to be a, a loss leader in society to enable innovations to occur in stuff which is totally blue sky. But how, is the case that, yeah. how do you set an upper limit on that, though? Because the government could say, well, let's just, uh, you know, well, you know, the party's 
on now we can create money so let's uh, let's spend money on a whole load of things some of some of which will work and some of which won't and could you have a race between countries so we've got china for example most mm. of its activity funded through debt it's you know for example built much of their rail network was funded largely by government lending uh, through state-owned banks so basically this is money that they created um, yeah. and uh, you know there's an asset that sits at the end of it it's a it's a, it's a rail infrastructure but they could just keep on doing that and keep on building other pieces of infrastructure which they believe is going to make their country more competitive and that puts them at an advantage over everybody else but if everyone else says look at what China is doing and they're doing it with money that they've created let's do the same thing and we could just keep on creating stuff and keep on you know and, and using up resources which may because again it's the government that's determining this we may have got it wrong but it could all get out out of hand couldn't it well, the thing is, it comes down to what are you going to run out of? And this is, the, again, the whole focus on the, on the, the money thing. Is it's quite paradoxical because at one stage they say we can't, we, we can't, we don't have the money when in fact they can create the money. But on the other hand, they're refusing to spend the money when there are people who are unemployed, physical resources out there, such as workers who are unemployed or capital that's idle. And there's a large amount of both in any well-functioning capitalist economy. Um, not an astronomical amount, not a huge amount of both, but there's certainly available labour and available resources most of the time. And it's then a question of if you actually employ them, what do you do to your other macroeconomic entities? Do you make the rate of inflation too high? Do you make your trade deficit grow too much, et cetera, et cetera? But so long as you've got those unemployed resources, the government does have this capability because it can create money out of nothing just by its own version of double entry bookkeeping and because its money is accepted as a as a liability that others use to buy goods off each other. Uh, there's no practical limit to it. So what we get is the fear of the sort of behaviour you're talking about, you know, runaway government behaviour, spending money and everything. Uh, in a sense, that fear uh, has led to the bogeyman economics at the other end that says, well, the government can't do that because it, it must spend uh, less than it uh, gets in taxes right. uh, because it's like a household. Totally mythical, totally false reason as to why they can, can't, can't do something. It isn't a case of can't, it's a could of should or shouldn't. Yeah, so, they, and, so perhaps they in many cases they shouldn't because the money that the government's spending is money that perhaps could be done uh, by the private sector. And, and, hang on, which, hang on, which, hang on. Sorry, which mate. Might, which sorry. might be more innovative. You're getting caught up in the If the government spends the money, it creates it. Okay, it's not money that there might be in the private sector instead. Right, but if the government, if the I, government doesn't do it, there won't be the money in the first place. Right, no, so, that, that wasn't the point I was trying to make. Let's take, for example, yeah. let's look at Australia, where you've got the national broadband network, which the government decided they were going to build high-speed fibre into everyone's home, stopped mm -hmm. the uh, stopped the telecoms industry's private investor in its tracks because they said, well, the government's going to do it, and the government didn't right. necessarily choose the most innovative way of building that, whereas the private sector possibly would have done. Well, that's a total stuff up, but I'll give you another example. That's South Korea. Now, of course, we know uh, South Korea until just very recently was leading the technological race in, in telecommunications before the Samsung 7 came out. But uh, I had a visitor from the Communist Party of South Korea uh, about 20-something years ago, an academic, uh, a very old-fashioned Marxist, quite a, quite a funny bloke to have to deal with. But anyway, he arrived in the country and uh, we, we, we looked for cheap accommodation and I finally found him somewhere. And he got his laptop out and he's 
plugged in the Ethernet cable to the laptop and then walk, walking around the walls trying to find a hole to plug it into. Yeah. And I had to tell him, sorry, mate, there, uh, there is no Ethernet connect. What? He was shocked. Now, back in South Korea, you could do exactly that. Go into a house, look for the Ethernet connection and plug your computer in. Every house in the country had to have a T1. What's it called? It's called a T1 or T100 connection. Yeah. T1, yeah, wasn't it? T1, uh, T1, I think, yeah. yeah. Okay, which means 100 megabits per, per second capability, quite in dramatic speeds compared to what we're used to even today with broadband. Mm. Now, that was mandated by the South the South Korean government. They, and what they told the communications companies, we don't care how you do it, but every house in the country has to have a T1 connection. So the government didn't actually do it. They probably provided the finance, some of the finance to do it. But the rule was, if you wanted to be a telecommunications company in South Korea, you had to be part of a consortium that provided high quality and uh, and low cost uh, internet networking capability throughout the entire country. That's what I think was a huge factor in the rise of companies like Samsung. Right. So you, it's that's the government saying how to do it, but not actually doing it. Now, the trouble was that the Australian case, they both said to do it and they tried to do it themselves and they followed absolutely nonsense ideas. And as you and I both know, made a total technological stuff up with the whole thing. Yeah, and uh, for which Australia will take a long time to recover, I think. Let's uh, let's look at another uh, idea of this, you know, government's creating money. And let's look at uh, let's look at Hinkley Point. The, you know, the, the, the plan is to build two nuclear reactors in Somerset in England. It's going to cost... 24, uh, call it 25 billion pounds to build. That money is going to come from a state-owned French body, the EDF, and a state-owned China body, the CGN. Presumably in each case, those governments are uh, upping their debt to pay it or creating their money to pay for it. The UK government could do just the same if it's just a question of money. Why do they need foreign investment if it comes from a foreign state-owned body that could do, is doing just what the UK government could do if they chose to? Exactly. It, it is. It is. It's a mythical reason not to fund it privately. It just means that they make they they get closer to making this budget balance that they think is a good idea look like they've achieved it by taking activities like that off budget, off balance sheet. And in fact, those are the ones that actually genuinely indebt you to uh, to the to, to the, your future because you're effectively borrowing the money from overseas or rather you're mean part of the part of the profit flow from selling electricity is going to go to overseas companies rather than domestic so in fact it's it's portrayed as being a way of uh, of you know minimizing the bill on future generations in fact it increases the bill it would be far better off if the Australian, the english government paid for it itself by issuing those bonds the central bank underwriting them where necessary creating the money if that's the outcome of doing it all and we have a investment in technological development in england as well so it's a it's yet another case where thinking conventional thinking about economics is leading to outrageously bad decisions right and isn't this happening the same around the world that uh, because mm-hmm. we're so adverse to debt in the west that china isn't china is just buying up as much as they can yeah, well, I mean, China's also, I mean, we're talking only about government debt here. And yeah, of course, yeah, the real issue yeah. would be if a future podcast is going to be on private debt, uh, which is the real da- danger because you know, a government can, cre- can finance its own debt by double entry bookkeeping. To finance private debt, you've got, to, you've got to make a profit. If you don't make a profit or your assets fall in value, you crash. And that's the... That's that's the real the danger we face. But yeah, with China, I mean, they they're flipping over from a private debt bubble to a government one, which means going from something which has limits to something that has no necessary limits. So um, they they potentially won't have as bad a financial crisis when it does hit them as the rest of the world has had. Um, but yeah, you can keep on going with this. It's it's then a question of of what do you do to your physical resources? What do you do to your trade balance? And in both those cases, China is well-placed because it's running a huge trade surplus. 
and it still has masses and masses of of rural workers it wants to convert into industrial ones so um it's got it's got a rubber band there and it's exploiting it very very well while the west is uh just tying itself up in knots instead so in conclusion is the way that we create growth around the world because we're not seeing a lot of it is that the, the governments abandon this idea of trying to balance their their budgets which they largely are of course most of them have, have abandoned the time frame anyway uh, mm. and and i guess you know ultimately in the long term it, it's a it's a healthy thing to do but in in the short term uh, governments should be creating uh, investment um, in in projects that are going to employ people and generate growth. But in the ideal world, they're going to involve the private sector in that somehow. They're not just going to do it themselves because of that that danger that they are going to make the wrong call. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly aware of that problem. And I don't, I'm not, not exactly a fan of bureaucracies. I think I actually turned the word bureaucracy to describe what seems to happen when you're going to run away bureaucratic system of imposed over what, what should be market or or intellectually based things like universities. So I've I've got my my druthers on that particular point. But the, the basic point is that governments are one of the two forms of money creation, and if we force them into running uh, deficits or surpluses all the time, we'll make that a target. That is actually a target to take money out of circulation in the physical economy. And that actually leads to financial crises. Right. So rather than being good management, it's extremely bad management. It's part of why we had the crisis back in 2007, 2008. And unless we get ourselves over that fixation, we're going to have, we're going to continue having them, or we're going to remain in the Japanese situation of uh, long-term stagnation. We have to stop behaving like chipmunks, basically. Indeed. We ain't chipmunks. <laughs> Cute as they might be, we're not chipmunks. You see what I did there? I brought it around. Uh, good to talk, yeah. Steve. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, mate, bye. Now, uh, next time, to what extent is the wealth of an economy determined by how quickly money changes hands? Now, we do know that these days money is changing hands a lot more slowly than it used to. So uh, that's why we need more of it. Or should we try and make it move quickly again? And if so, how do we do that? Or is the old theory on the velocity of uh, money just a a load of bunkum? We'll talk about that next time on the Debunking Economics. Till then, thanks for listening. 